Weller and Gadel Chess is Minlam Buikas a Gual, it Iliagas Achtan Firkin Folcher, a Dara Shud Room Haynes, Yatsanatoitash the Lam. Is Mila Buikas Achtan Quire, Hold Chiftam, the Lither Gishivit Claybader, Nehis Tofoktini, one of winning Lish and Ginishak, Masnagluta Tolichia. May I just say that I was absolutely delighted to get the invitation to speak here. And may I first of all congratulate all of you on participating not only today, but over the weeks and months and the time to come in which you will be engaging with these subjects. I do want to thank Frank Dorr, Chairperson of the Conference Organizing Committee, for inviting me here today. And I must say I'm delighted to see representatives from all of the generations who are present here today sharing concerns and learning from each other about what we can all do as citizens to play our part in what is the greatest contemporary challenge facing us as inhabitants of this planet. It is, these are issues that we'll discuss that affect all generations on all parts of the planet. It is wonderful that the young who will be the best informed generation for a long time, are taking up this issue in their own way. But as I speak, I, I also think back, if you are at my age in many cases, of the very brave people who defended the environment in the past and who did not receive assistance. There have been, I am a supporter of Greta, but there have been many other Gretas before and many male equivalents who are ignored. And this is part of what we have to change. An example I would give you is yesterday, some of the two best writers on the contemporary issues of climate change, global poverty, and tonight the whole issue of ethics. Uh, I'm speaking of Ian Goth, who's the one book, if one was to choose one book, I would recommend his book, Eat, Greed, and Human Need. He, Greed, and Human Need is really the definitive book. Heat, Greed, and Human Need. Ian was speaking, he's about my age, and also so also. was a brave new young, a brave voice in economics, Mariana Mazzucato. Um, I think, looking at the newsprint today, while we had many distinguished visitors in attendance, drawn from fiscal studies right across the spectrum, some of them are here, Pada Carvey was there, and others like that. Not a single line, because the economics correspondents were attending a banker's conference. So one of the important things about your meeting and so forth is your capacity to be heard. And I congratulate you on that. Because it isn't taking from any of your achievements that I mention all of the brave people I had the honor of knowing in different parts of the world who stood alone and sometimes with small groups of people in the heat of the sun. And were because the vast majority had neither, sometimes they hadn't the information, sometimes they hadn't the knowledge, but most often they hadn't the moral courage to take part and support them. And it goes on. And it would be very easy to say 
well, this is really a political program, so you dismiss all politicians and all politics and all assemblies. A lazy and convenient evasion that would be, because there were those who stood for the poor, and there were those who stood for capital and corporations. There were peasants in Ecuador who came together in their villages because their water was poisoned, and they had representatives. Indigenous peoples gradually came into politics. And the multinational corporation that opposed the people in Ecuador said, we will fight their case until hell freezes over, and then we'll fight it on the ice. So I say to the many people who are here today, at this stage of my life, you cannot go on imagining that you can have a significant contribution to make without addressing the issue of power. Power matters. There are powerful interests, not only the fossil fuel industries and others, they have their, one of their cleverest techniques is to adopt some of the strongest voices into their midst for colloquiums and whatever. And the money pours through the foundations opposing everything that we do. And like the poor of the world, all you have are your numbers. So therefore you have to become more better information, capable of empirical verification. You have in fact actually to be ahead of the posse in all of the information, but also in the clever uses of information in a media that will in fact so frequently ignore you. I have to say that as a preface, because I'm not very much, I address many, many meetings, and yesterday's was one of the most important I addressed. And I don't, wouldn't really be very interested in going on appearing as the person who's had a certain background on human rights issues, repeating it again and again. I actually am delighted to speak to this mixed generational audience and to speak about this issue of how we must combine three forms of consciousness. A consciousness of the importance of nature and ecology, with a consciousness of what a great human failure it is, the global poverty and has in fact not been eliminated. I can return to that if anyone wishes. And then the third issue is in relation to the deepening and growing inequality and the lack of capacity to make the case uh, for an alternative set of alternatives. So it isn't a matter of feeling good in the midst of chaos. It is a matter of doing the work to move from that chaos to move from a paradigm of failure that is visiting, it's not on us, but on the poorest people of the world, to one of which we can use human spirit and human intelligence and human practice and work for the benefit of mankind. I'm delighted some of you may go on to universities. You will not find what I'm saying now, taught in first year, second year or third year, across the continent of North America, not a single university teaches 15% of the time of any of its students in the curriculum on the history of economics. We've had a single failing model that has visited its consequences. It has 
failed in relation to global poverty, failed in relation to reducing global inequality, and now has brought the, the, the continent, the, the whole planet itself, to a, the point of aggressiveness of destruction. But what is important you have to realize is that if one went as far as one could on, let us say, the green issues, you would still be left with the issue of income. And then even in relation beyond the issue of income, it isn't about enabling people just to stay alive on the planet, let us say $1.95. Some of the wealthiest foundations on the planet, they're called, if you like, they're now the optimist group. And they suggest we're winning the battle against global poverty because they say the number of people living on less than $1.95 a day has gone down. And what has happened? If people were to judge for them, that would be the equivalent of 25 families in the United Kingdom living on one minimum wage. But if you shift it to, for example, what is necessary to live in relation to $3.95 or 4 you have 2.3 billion people who are suffering from nutrition, abs nutritional difficulties, from a whole series of different indicators. So why I say, given that from the background that I have, we have to be able to contest the bogus numbers, the false metrics that are found around. Because the suggestion that we're winning the battle against extreme global poverty is being used to defeat those who are working for equality, the right of every child to flourish and education and be safe and have an adequate health service. There is a battle about the metrics and the foundations, some of them, for example, some of them in many, many cases is rather like this. If you have a global system, a financialized global economy, and it is wreaking disaster all over the place, and you suddenly say, Somebody gets a burst, I've said, we can handle this now through philanthropy. This is rather like starving the world and then saying we'll pick up a few to take the harm out of it. And this is why three consciousness, consciousness must combine on ecology, economy, and the ethics of equality. And it will include all of the others, such as gender and all of those issues. It's a fundamental of my approach, and that's what, in fact, runs through the many, many speeches I have been giving on these issues, including in New York and Athens, and hopefully next year in Africa. I think one of the things um, about it as well that arises in this is, is another little one, you remember a phrase that was used when we had the experience of responding to the economic collapse of 2008 and la austeridad, as we would call it in Latin America. People would say, we've all been living beyond our means. We're all guilty. We were not all living beyond our means. There were people who were poor, who became poorer. There were people who were hungry, who were more precarious than ever. And some people were not affected, like myself and others. The notion that we're all in it together 
we are all facing a common challenge together. But it has to be honesty, moral integrity requires that we look at how it is impacting differently on different people. Rising sea level is impacting today and tomorrow and in the future time. We aren't, if you're not, coastal, on small island and coastal communities. I spoke to them in New York. They are at the front line. They were the least contributors to the dilemma in which we are, with which we wrestle. But they are the people who are suffering most. So the notion, yes, it is important that every single action will add to a response. I totally support that. But it is very important that we not use that to blind us from the fact that, in fact, the consequences of climate change are being experienced disproportionately. And it raises a question that arises in relation to our response as well. One part of the world, the developed world, has immense resources and capacity to respond to climate change. The other part of the world has very limited resources. And one of the issues was put at the seminar I organized in Orson yesterday, the very first seminar rather like this that was ever organized in Orson But one of the questions was, are we asking some communities in the world to give up on the basics of living uh, so that the people in the high consumption level can begin adjusting their consumption patterns. That's why human need is the starting point. And you moved from that in relation to sustainable economy and connections between economy and ethics and ecology. So not everyone likes to hear this because it's very easy to like to take a part of the argument, any one of the three components, and have an evening of flourishing on it. What's really tough is, in fact, to say, how do we put it together and what will we do in the immediate? You've been addressing this. I so congratulate you on it. Every single action, the whole series of things in relation to the consumption of energy that people could do every day, I so strongly support that. And in all of that, young people are giving us a lead. There are certain many things that people do by using the, the new technology. But there's no doubt whatever is that the longer we wait as well, the more we intensify and perpetuate the injustice of climate change. And we run the risk, indeed, of being regarded by future survivors of our planet as having been in collusion with the destruction of the lives and live worlds of some of the most vulnerable peoples of our human family and the biodiversity on which our planetary life depends. There is another strain as someone who is trained as a sociologist to say, today a very good friend of Irish sociology has died, James of Canada. But where have they been, the philosophers? Where have they been, the scholars, who should have supported those brave people in their day? Why are they silent? What has happened to the institutions that say if we're, we have to keep our head down in order to get the money to go on? 
and we won't address these issues and we can get an income from taking the richest children of the richest families from all over the world to come and pay us extraordinary fees. I, I'm not at, somehow transported as others are by the notion of those who say, I deserve this, I want this, I was owed this or whatever. To be so much more exciting, I say too, as an artist, to be with people and in groups and living in communities that say in many cases, we all believe in a world in which every child could flourish. And I think about words, I, what have I said about the philosophers? Where is the work on insatiability? When I worked with many people in the past, they would say, sufficiency, what is sufficient? What is sufficient, not just exist, sufficient, to live, to participate. As Amartya Sen might put it, to participate in your community without shame. And how did insatiability get going? You know, you almost have now an extraordinary voyeuristic interest in some sections of the press in the neurosis of billionaires. How unhappy some of them are. And how some of them are so insecure that they might be moved to give some of their wealth away as an alternative to anything like paying tax or to participating in the costs of the, of the world. And this is the important thing about life and truth and beauty. All those things I looked at a long time ago in philosophy, they still matter. I wish you all a beautiful life. And I wish you success in your wishing that every child on this planet would have a beautiful life. But I cannot say that I have great confidence in the capacity of the leadership you may see in relation to delivering these kind of concepts. Ethics went out of fashion a long time ago. There were periods in history, in our island next door and whatever, Irish people sent to their elderly relatives to get their false teeth and their hips and their limbs repaired in the British National Health Service. There was a time after the war when people said, we're building houses for people, so that it is the most important thing to be building housing. And there was a time when people said as well, ill or injured, you should go into a hospital and be treated equally. This became something that was regarded as a kind of a leftover of communism. That with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and all the ugliness of, of statism, whatever, that a socialist vision had also gone. So we shouldn't be able to say, those of us who were egalitarians or whatever, we shouldn't be able to say what it is that we believed in anymore. So there's a smugness about individualism. And individualism is lodged in our institutions. It's lodged in what you are being taught at universities and whatever. And the power of the collective, of the cooperative, of what you might call the liberating, emancipatory, utopian, is left, for example. And that's why, for me, it wouldn't be much of a kick to go on doing giving these, as they would say, as long as you're inspirational, Michael D. it'll do. I'm far more interested in making connections 
with people who are being emancipatory through their own means, through your own lives. And may your lives not be wasted on bad economics, on poor assumptions about society. But I do say to you, you must make the connection between the ecosystem, the economic system, and debates on ethics. There will be many, many other changes, people, about it. Sometimes it is one of the features of the modern world that some of the best of our scholarship confines itself to description. If you describe something and it goes down well, you can describe it again and again and again, and that's a contribution. I'm much more interested in the subversion of, of assumptions about how people come to hold, uh, uh, how people come to hold different views. So I won't, I have circulated a speech, and it will be for those unlike yourselves who are not interested very, very much, and they can read all the facts that you already know. But I'm not going to waste your time and mine by, in fact, actually regaling you with facts that I know you are possessed of. I think that there is something very interesting that comes after the combination of consciousness in relation to the three areas of economy and ecosystem and, and, and ethics. And that is something I, I picked a long time ago when I was a young sociologist. It was about the importance of a sense of belonging. I, I thought, I began teaching in university in, in, in about 1968, 69. And I watched the people who came in from the housing estates first, who had never had any the opportunity. 1962 is about this free secondary education. And the sense in which, for example, I, would, I offered some voluntary tutorials at times to encourage them that if they got past Christmas, they would in fact actually have a much better chance of getting past the first year exams. But a great deal of it was about their feeling uncomfortable about where they found themselves. Because the class system, for example, if you look at the whole structure of the legal system of this country and whatever, it revolves and resonates and is deeply imbued with notions of class. So therefore, you feel uncomfortable in this new setting. And this is also the case, for example, when I was studying the experience of African migrants in cities and whatever. And you get the same thing with a migrant, this of wanting to have a sense of belonging. Now, this can go entirely wrong. It can go entirely wrong in both assumptions and knowledge and belief, such as, for example, people who go to Eton and imagine that they have been sent onto the planet to rule and that their behavior doesn't matter and their assumptions doesn't matter and their arrogance doesn't matter. But the sense of belonging in the public world, in a republic that has fought for its independence and that is saying to the rest of the world, we share your aspiration for a fulfillment in life and so forth, is entirely different. And that's why I have been working lately in connection with new work with <coughs> Professor Hartmut Rosen on theories of resonance, a sociology of our relationship to the world. And he writes from the act of breathing to the adoption of culturally distinct worldviews. All the great crises of modern society, 
ecological, democratic, psychological, can be understood and analyzed in terms of resonance and our broken relationship to the world around us. Beyond all the sociological questions, sometimes at different stages of life, people will say to you, it arises very much in the arts as well. People said, I was happy that day, or I was happy there. It is all about how the world is taken into one and how one enters the world. And that's the importance of thought and philosophy and so on. But you are such, have such a great now advantage in many ways. I think there are people, good, there are good books appearing. I've said about what's being taught badly in the universities. But there is Mario Mazzucato's work on the state, and there is in Ian Goff's work, but also people like Kate Roberts' book, Donut Economics, a basis for a whole new kind of learning. And I think that will produce eco-social policies. Kate Roberts writes, a social foundation of well-being that no one should fall below, and an ecological ceiling of planetary pressure that we should not go beyond, a flaw from which one, below which one wouldn't sink, and a limit which is accepted. And between the two, Robert writes, lies a safe and just space for all. But then, as I've said, and I'm coming to the end, is that Ian Goff, whom I know, I think has said something about the rich world. The rich world bears a double obligation. It has been responsible for the majority of the accumulated greenhouse gases to date. And because of its greater wealth, it has far greater capacity to lead the world in fast decarbonization. We must also recognize that the countries of the rich are themselves driven by inequalities in wealth, income, and political power. Provision according to need has always been in tension with capitalist values and private sector interests and has to be constantly fought for and renewed. An evolving war of attrition heightened by the financial crisis of 2008 and its aftermath. We cannot allow this to happen again. And the mere placing of a new lens on the existing orthodox growth model will not suffice. What we need, and it's a phrase I use again and again, is a paradigm shift. When in science, for example, people question the very basic assumptions upon which a theory has in fact been built and from which policy is derived, they refer to a paradigm shift, a shift in the most basic assumptions. This is what we need, is a paradigm shift. A new recovered version of political economy linked to an awareness in relation to ecology, producing a new ecological social paradigm. And that's why I recommended books like Heath's Greed and Human Need of, of Ian Goff and otherwise. I think people will technically describe this as a, sta a steady state economy. This is when, in fact, actually you're using the resources that are available to you in a responsible way. But I think it is possible for us to make a great leap into responsibility in relation to ecological matters. 
at the same time as we recognize the havoc of inequality, and also to realize as well that notions of accelerated growth are in fact going to not only damage us ecologically, they're going to damage us socially and for the future. I want to finish to say, in many cases, that people sometimes say, is this just a mistake we made? No. These, what we are seeking to escape from, live out of, put an alternative in place, is the result of conscious decisions. Conscious decisions. As I, I used in the old days, <coughs> give reference to the Mount Pelerin Society and Virtual Secret Society of those who want to defend capital at any cost. But there's a modern literature, and the modern literature <coughs> goes like this. The important thing to defend is an individual freedom without limits or without restraint by the state. And the case is usually made from it by some of the most recent French writers by saying, what is at stake is our very freedom. And they refer to any intrusion of the state in relation to regulation or restraint as paternalism. And I have spoken, and I'm nearly finished, about the health system that came into being because of public demand, or public support for it. The good housing that came after the war. I've spoken about as well as that, that public parks. I was a minister for culture. The importance of their being available to everybody, irrespective of income. That world was attacked by extreme individualism. It gave you, instead of those adequate houses, it gave you the gated communities of the rich, and it assumed that all the rest must be scrabbling for getting their foot on the property ladder. It gave you in relation to health that there was nothing entirely wrong with being able to purchase a faster, better form of health than the other citizen. And right across all of this, in relation to this, and everything was commodified and privatized. And we must have the courage to speak about the connection between these ideas and whatever. For if the public world is to be reconstituted, and if the word citizen is going to be used, citizen of Ireland, citizen of Europe, citizen of the world, global citizen with intergenerational responsibility, I believe it requires that kind of integrated thinking. I thank you for your patience and listening to me, and I wish your conference well. And I salute all your efforts. Is Guim Gokragas Banat, and Nahir Nerite Megar Shulagi, Dantal Kinia Sonor Fane, Akasun Naglunta Talichiat, is Berbanat, Gramagi, thank you.